first of our episodes spotlighting Scotland's slaving history, we went big and broad, building a picture of the landscape which saw thousands of Scots become enthusiastic participants in the business of the British Empire, including migrating to slave colonies in the Caribbean to seek their fortune. Now it's time to get personal, to uncover the individual stories which, pieced together, can paint a picture of how the lives of Scottish migrants and enslaved Africans collided and produced children, whose experiences lend a whole new perspective to understanding how slavery further entrenched a racial system that we still haven't shaken off today. I'm Moya Lothian MacLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. Any listener who's tuned into previous episodes of Human Resources will know that I'm mixed race, white English and black Caribbean, Jamaican to be exact. Having been born in the 20th century, now I'm very much read and racialized as a mixed race black person. Being mixed race now is no longer stigmatized in Western society for the most part, as defying the laws of nature by mixing races. Now, I would argue, in the UK at least, being mixed race, white and black is more often fetishized than ostracized by mainstream culture. It's seen as being close enough in proximity to whiteness not to pose a threat, but diverse enough to be progressive. Common mixed race features are included in current beauty ideals, mixed race models populate adverts, mixed race people are scattered across TV shows, We're not anywhere near equality here, but it feels a galaxy away from the most typical experience of being half-caste in the 18th century, when mixed-race black children were considered abominations. And during the slave trade, it was most likely that those mixed children would be the offspring of a white man in a position of power and an enslaved black African woman. It's the stories of these children that I want to understand today. So I'm speaking to Desha Osborne, who teaches literature in the Department of Africana, Puerto Rican and Latino Studies at Hunter College in New York. My mother, her grandmother, was mixed race, Scottish and indigenous. She was mixed race Kalinago, which were one of the native peoples in the Eastern Caribbean. Historically, they were known as Carib, but her grandmother was a product of a Scottish man named Walter Rose and a Kalinago woman named Carrie. We don't really know what her full name was because of the paucity of records. But they had my mother's grandmother and she traveled to Scotland when she was a little girl. So part of our kind of oral family stories is this admixture of Afro-Caribbean, of Native Indigenous people, and also of the Scottish heritage. First of all, who are we seeing primarily head out to the Caribbean from Scotland? There is strong evidence to show that there were lots of of men who were indentured. There's an older historical tradition of talking about white slaves as well, because there was a kind of famous case of Indian Peter, Peter Williamson, who was a child captured in Aberdeen and sent over. Um, And that for a long time superseded larger discussions about their involvement in slavery. But that was one aspect that they were people who who were indentured, which meant, you know, you were contracted to work for seven years on the estate of a more wealthy person, usually another Scot, wealthier Scot who owned land. Apart from indentured men, who else might be finding their way to the Caribbean from Scotland? 
There were also people who were soldiers. Soldiers had a huge role in the Caribbean and, you know, lots of instances in the, in the archives of Scottish soldiers who ended up, you know, staying, <laughs> who bought land and stayed after. While they were commissioned to particular forts on islands, they also bought land and had children with enslaved women. They're also, the majority would have been the younger cadet sons of Lairds. This is where I think a lot of my examples come from. A lot of the people that I have been researching were the third, fourth, and fifth sons who had no prospects in Scotland for various reasons. And so were being, were kind of pushed <laughs> abroad because of the opportunities that were available to them. We also need to consider the, the question or the problem of the Highland clearances, that this also resulted in a lot of people being forcibly removed and also people having no other choice. They felt like they had no other choice but to leave. And this is where the colonies, this is where the plantations in the Carolinas and the new Florida colonies and the Caribbean played a role in. Where in the Caribbean exactly would these Scottish men be going? Jamaica would be the biggest because of that longer history. And we also needed to also consider the fact that people were leaving in clusters and there were networks being formed you know, that were based off of networks in Scotland already. So islands like Jamaica and Antigua and Barbados, which had older, going back into the 17th century, they had older established estates and colonies there. They were able to kind of move there more fluidly. When it comes to defeated islands, which were ceded after the Treaty of Paris in 1763 from France to England. And these islands were St. Vincent, the many Grenadine Islands, Grenada, Tobago, St. Lucia, Dominica, and the two new colonies of East and West Florida. And that is particularly where a lot of Northeast Scots were migrating to. So there was this kind of threshold, <laughs> a watershed moment around 18, sorry, 1763 and after where lots of people from this particular part of Scotland were migrating. I presume the evidence for these migrations doesn't just consist of checking ship registers and financial records. I can tell you in St. Vincent, for example, there is a dance, a certain particular way of dancing that I think in recent years, thanks to kind of historical uncovering, it's been revealed that that this particular dance, they, from my mother and grandmother, I remember they, they would call it um, a quadrille, for example. And it does have its direct links to Scotland. So I think that's one, one kind of clear example there. There's a, a local dance troupe on St. Vincent that does this. They revive the older dance traditions. And it's a kind of very straightforward hybrid mix of the Scottish and the, the African. And they do wear like kind of a modified tartan you know, where the patterns are out of what you would find in, in a, like a clan tartan, but then the colors themselves are ones that are based off of Caribbean flag of the, of the island or based off of like having kind of those like pan-African symbolisms, <laughs> the greens, the reds, the blacks. That's so interesting. I hadn't even considered that there would be tartans in the Caribbean islands, but of course, of course, the culture would be exported in some way. There are plenty of instances of this, especially if we consider, you know, some of the older islands, older colonies like Jamaica and Barbados, where there's one instance of in the years following after the Jacobite rebellion, there's an example of a Jamaican um, plantation owner who made his his enslaved people wear tartan. They wore kilts. That was part of their one of the things that he had them do while they worked, while they cut cane, they were wearing tartans. Now, you've been researching a man called Alexander Leith, 
whose story is one that opens up a window into this part of history that feels extremely difficult to navigate, that of mixed-race children who were produced by Scottish men and enslaved black women. The experience of these children is particularly illuminating when it comes to stories of empire. What can you tell us about Alexander? He was the father of enslaved children, wasn't he? Alexander Leith, he was born around 1752. He left Aberdeen in 1771. His family were quite poor. They were very impoverished, more so on account of the fact that his father was, it was very difficult for him to maintain work, even though his father was the son of the Lord of Glenkindy and Freefield, Alexander Leith of those lands. And his father was for a time factor of the estate of Leith Hall, which is one of the many castles that the National Trust of Scotland currently is in charge of. And he, he lost his factorship, he lost his tackman position, and the family fell into destitution. And this resulted in the children being kind of dispersed across different family members. And Alexander was educated by his uncle and grandfather for a little bit of time, and then he was sent to St. Vincent. And this is where he established himself. And he lived in St. Vincent roughly from 1771 until he died in 1798. And his story, I think, is quite typical. It's a good way of, of understanding what drove people to the Caribbean and what also what they did when they were there. So he um, started out as manager and overseer. And then once he was able to kind of save and build his own wealth, he was able to buy his own land. And this is where, you know, I'm not able to find exactly, you know, every major detail, but like many of the white European men on these islands, he joined the local militia. And this is where they were, they were commissioned to fight in this in this war. And um, he had this interaction with the Carib chief that resulted in the Carib chief's death. He died two or three years later from injuries that he got in the war. So Alexander Leith, he built himself up from what I would call an impoverished middle-class background, where the family had the status, but not much actual cash. But then he became someone who owned land and was a planter himself in the end. And he had two children, John and Peter. These two little mixed-race black African and white Scottish boys, they get sent back to Scotland, don't they? Yes, they did. He sent John back to Aberdeen to live with his sisters and his brother-in-law to get educated. You know, this is very quite fascinating that, you know, these Scottish men were acknowledging these mixed-race children um, who were, you know, most of them were enslaved up until these men's deaths when they freed them in their will, or they were freed at some point earlier and then given land or money. So that was self-fascinating to me. And second, that, you know, there was more than one of these accounts that that John and his brother Peter were not unique stories. And once I kind of digged more into the just the Leith family archives, I was able to find another instance, Leith's, his uncle's relatives by marriage were the Rosses of Arnage, which is in Ellen Aberdeenshire. And they had a similar story of the heir to the Lord of Arnage. He left Aberdeenshire in the 1760s and went to East Florida. And he had a very similar story. He, he had two children with an enslaved woman. And when the American Revolution took place, he moved the family to Dominica. But before they moved to Dominica, he sent those two girls back to Scotland. So within this one family, there are four instances of, of enslaved children being sent back to Aberdeen for education. So these small mixed children are living in Aberdeen. Do we know what their life is like there? 
are they accepted? Was this standard for mixed-race children at the time? And how did these white European fathers who've had children, presumably out of sexual violence, how did they decide that these children would be brought into the white family fold back home? That I really can't say. Daniel Livesey wrote a really interesting book on this subject, but his focus was on Jamaica. And what we found in those instances that Daniel Livesey wrote about was that the children tended to stay in Scotland. There was a kind of usually fights over, <laughs> over money because, you know, depending on the, on the individual, they may or may not leave those mixed race children anything. Sometimes it was a small fraction and other instances, they were just given enough to survive. With John and Peter, Alexander's will, he left it up to the discretion of his executors, which I think a lot of other people did as well, who happened to be his sisters and his brother-in-laws. And so there seems to be a family connection, but I mean, and this is kind of opening up questions of kinship, right? Where, what constitutes family in that sense? And I think it's, what we see are people not really understanding or knowing what to do. So they're kind of just playing it by ear. And it really depends on the person, whether they accept that individual as a niece or nephew or grandchild, or they are just seen as an appendage. You know, literature, literary fiction of the 19th century, for example, there are tons of examples of this. I think because it was so prevalent, we have lots of instances of this occurring. And, you know, we can kind of look to the the literature to see how these relationships were being negotiated. When it came to the men, the young men, I think it was a lot more complicated because I, I think there were issues with marriage, who they could and couldn't marry. There were questions of, of inheritance and how does one make a living? In the case of John and Peter, they ultimately went back to St. Vincent. After their education, they left. And I think in some ways they fared better than some of the other children who stayed in Scotland, which the two young girls, I think, are an example of those who stayed in Scotland and didn't necessarily have better lives. And again, you know, this opens up another, I think, problem when it comes to the Caribbean and colorism and the social status that one gets from being the child of the plantation owner. How did the status of these mixed race children change depending on where in the world they were based? I think, you know, at its base, it's based in color. Another example of James Hay, who was also from Scotland, and he was based in Grenada. He was Speaker of the House of Assembly there, and he's a very wealthy planter. He had two sets of children, one with his enslaved woman named Fanny, an enslaved African. And he had, I think, three children with her. And they never left Grenada. They stayed there. Socially, they were of a higher standing than the other enslaved people at the time of their enslavement. They were later on freed in his will, but they were kind of, I don't want to say stuck, but they were, there was no movement beyond the island. James Hay had another set of children with a freed mixed race woman. So she was a child of a planter and a slave woman, and she later on had children with him. Her name was Elizabeth Junor. And they had six children who all went with him when he moved to London. He left and moved to London and he brought those children and their mother with him. And on his death, those children inherited, his sons inherited 6,000 pounds and the daughters inherited 5,000 pounds. That's quite a big difference than what his mixed race children in Grenada would have had. You know, they had the 500 pound inheritance, whereas these 
we're going to believe they were lighter skin, right? Because they were only one quarter of African. Visually, they were encouraged to mix into British society. They were encouraged to marry white or other mixed race people. And there's another example of, I think his name is Robert Harvey or John Harvey from Aberdeen. When he wrote his will, he instructed his mixed race daughters that they were not going to get any inheritance if they married black men. They would only get the inheritance if they married white men or, or men of color. I think race and color is going to be one of the founding principles of how these relationships were based, both in the Caribbean and also Britain itself. What we're seeing here is the idea of race and the idea of coding people as different races that has really taken root through slavery. In the last episode, we heard about how this process was started by the Portuguese, And what we're seeing here is how colorism is baked into that to navigate this issue of mixed-race children. Already, there's that status of, if you're one-quarter black and you're light-skinned enough, you can move somewhat through white society. You can be accepted and exempted from the same treatment meted out to enslaved Africans who are not mixed. But, in the same breath, you're made to stay in the colonies. Yes, some people might have wanted to, But that's because, you know, back in white society, the full freedoms afforded by whiteness are not totally bestowed on these mixed children. Their status is higher when they are surrounded by black enslaved people. The conditions of inheritance from white fathers who have made their money in the colonies are also fascinating. Robert Harvey's mixed daughters stand to inherit, so long as they don't marry black men. Other mixed children inherited the very plantations their mothers, and even they, had been enslaved upon. What does that tell us about the way mixed-race children were brought in to continue the white supremacist status quo, rather than challenge it? For one, it it turns whiteness into a legal category, and not a (laughs) sort of ethnic one. It also creates an incentive for racism. There is an economic advantage to kind of creating these divisions. You know, I spoke earlier about these divisions and what happened, how one was more incentivized to stay in the Caribbean if you were mixed race and you were were promised wealth. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that came out in discussing this with family and friends, this project, I would do the, you know, just the normal thing of asking my, my parents or my older aunts and uncles, like, have you heard of this surname? And the answer would be, oh, that's, those are white people. And then when you kind of do the visual research and you see that these people are clearly mixed race, but in the Caribbean, there is this negotiation between what whiteness means doesn't really necessarily mean what it does in other places. That people who are mixed race to a point where the mixture is very, I don't know how to say it, but very um, intense. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it becomes something else. It becomes blackness as an identity no longer becomes part of that discussion. And so you have the creation of, I think maybe a third social economic category of people in these islands. And there is the more readily available examples would have been somewhere like, like Louisiana in the 18th century, where you have that, it's a kind of a established social order where they are these second families of mixed race people. And those people, women are, are kind of bred in order to become, the older term would have been concubines. A lot of people, a lot of historians still use that term concubine because for want of a better term. So I think the Caribbean is doing something very similar do we know if in Scotland there was any difference in the way that they treated mixed-race children compared to the treatment of mixed-race children across the border in England? 
We've obviously talked about how colorism plays into this treatment, but were wealth and class more pressing factors in how these children were received? I think there are plenty of instances where fortune-seeking British men, both English and Scottish, would seek to marry these mixed-race heiresses. The daughters of James Hay married, they married white men, (laughs) Englishmen. So in terms of that difference between the English and the Scottish, I think I don't want to like praise the Scottish for, for their for their endeavors, but there seems to be a little bit more of acceptance. The question of kinship becomes more complicated, whereas the record would show Englishmen and Americans, for that example, considering the production of children as more uh, unpaid labor. You know, like where the children in the antebellum South of these unions, of these these connections, were not acknowledged as children. They were just not acknowledged. You know, the enslavers didn't consider these children to be their own. They considered them as their property in a kind of economic sense. So what we're seeing is because the islands act as, you know, little worlds onto their own, the water acts as a kind of border. So we can even have whole communities, whole identities being developed that are unique to another island. And I think when we have these networks of Scottish people leaving their homes from either, you know, be it the Highlands or the Northeast or Ayrshire, for example, that you have you have these pockets of families already there. Another example is Gilbert Douglas. He was part of that post-1763 migration. He had children with two enslaved women named Jenny and Rosanna. He had all daughters, Charlotte, Eliza, Jesse, Jenny. And Charlotte was his first child. She was born into slavery, and he freed them all around 1802, and she ended up marrying one of his nephews. And she had children with one nephew, and then she ended up marrying another nephew. (laughs) It's a quite interesting kind of network, almost in the same way that we see the family networks and and the the kinship connections where people marry their cousins in Scotland is kind of almost replicating in the Caribbean. And it really has to do with who are your neighbours, who is around you. Does history know what to do with these children? In the present day, a lot of mixed-race individuals of any mixed ethnic background have spoken about feeling they exist somewhat beyond categorization and feeling unmoored because of it. How did contemporary records document the existence of these children? Was their ethnicity acknowledged or erased? In the essence of the stories I'm telling, I think for the most part they were hidden. Sometimes they're hidden in plain sight, so it's just a matter of how you are able to read what's being said. So there would be an occasion reference to someone being colored. But when it comes to these four children that I'm I'm writing about, John and Peter and Sophia and Margaret, there was an attempt at a deliberate erasure. Obviously, it wasn't successful, but I think, you know, in, in some instances, people are not being mentioned as particularly being of African descent. They would, they would use other terms like colored or native. <laughs> Again, it depends on the family. I think individual, individual people were very much trying to negotiate this on their own. Do we have any idea how these children themselves conceived of their identity? We just don't know because there are so few written records from their own voices. In the case of Sophia, who I have the most information about in terms of kind of a biography, I mean, even with her, it's all kind of marginal in terms of trying to put together the story. What's interesting about her is that she does marry a distant relative named Turner Donaldson, and they lived as crofters on the family estate. And 
Two of her children were later on arrested around 1822-23. Their two sons, Alexander and Thomas Donaldson, they were arrested. And because of their ages, one was transported to Australia as punishment because they were stealing from local, local people. And the older son, Thomas, was executed. And what I did find in the record was his scaffold speech. It's published in the Aberdeen Journal, and he, he talks about his parents trying very hard to teach him that his parents, they put education at the forefront and he never accepted it. He just wanted to kind of get money quickly and he was wrong. And he gives this really kind of impassioned speech about feeling regret for the fact that his parents really did try to do better for him, given their impoverished status. It's the end of the story in terms of like, there's no more to, to find in terms of Sophia and her children. But I think it's quite a fascinating look into what was going on. Because I, I, mean, I don't know if that had to do with identity, because when he was arrested, there was quite a long description of him physically. And they said in the newspaper, you know, he has blue eyes, but his skin is quite dark. And that's because his mother's a mulatto. This is what they made a point of saying. So I, I think it seems to be inescapable that one is throughout their entire life. And and I, I also speculate the reason why this is being put into the family archive is kind of a racist reminder of this is what happens when you allow people of colour into your family. So conspicuous in their absence to me in these histories are the Black mothers of these children. What does that tell us? It tells us a lot, I think. And we only need to read a lot of the other work being done on this. For example, someone like Brenda Stevenson, who wrote, wrote about the experiences of women in the American South and the fact that particularly mixed race women, these women who were the results of, of the European men and, and African women were very much being bred, and I don't say trained, but being bred into having a sexual role. That is the kind of the limit to her existence was, you know, she had a domestic role, but also with the added addition of, fulfilling the sexual needs of these men. In that respect, I think the Scots were no different. <laughs> there are instances of mothers pushing daughters into it, these relationships. John and Peter's mother, Rosalind, she was freed with them when Leith emanumated them in his will in 1802. They were, they were also freed. And John made the point of buying his mother land. He bought her an estate in Calaqua, part of St. Vincent. And in the case of Sophia and Margaret, their mother is a much more tragic story. I think one that is probably more common. She was never freed. As far as I know, you know, that because the family moves around so much, it's, you know, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, their records in Florida. And there's some Florida historians who, who claim that they were married and their, their records in Dominica, especially John's will, <laughs> doesn't really indicate that. It's pretty clear that she was enslaved her entire life and she never saw her daughters again. But in John's will, there's this really tragic denouement where in the codicil to his will, three days before he dies, he indicates that he wants her to be sold. He particularly wants her and a young, an enslaved man named York to be sold. There's a suggestion here that, that something happened and he's very unhappy with her. And he tells his executor, Thomas Rainey, another Scot who had mixed race children, and he tells Thomas Rainey that he wants it to be up to him whether he gives her clothes or not. So there's this really just devastating end to her story where we know that she's being sold off with or without anything to wear. There's a kind of purposeful cruelty, the show of power 
that he was able to show in his last moments of life. You might be sitting at home listening to these stories of pain passed forward of mixed race children choosing to continue cycles of slavery and thinking that could never happen now. That a mixed race child who inherits a slave plantation and continues to profit from it instead of freeing those enslaved there is merely a product of their time. But these were choices to uphold certain structures that harmed people who looked just like them. And today we can see the same forces at play. Think of government ministers who are the children of first-generation immigrants, forcing through some of the strictest, most dehumanising and racist laws Britain has seen in decades. Empire has always recruited those who stand to lose the most from the imperial project to act instead as foot soldiers to enforce it. There's so much I could say about this. The social history of being a mixed-race person fascinates me, especially because it's very hard to trace a lot of the time. But there are other places we need to turn our attention to in the space that we've got. And the Scottish story is far from over. Next time, we'll be talking business and breaking down the idea that all those who went to seek their fortunes in the colonies came back with their pockets full. If you've enjoyed this episode, or our past episodes, please rate and review our show in your favourite podcast app. It helps more people discover the show. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian-McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Arisa Lumba and Dr Alison Bennett. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Sound design by Lex Ademora. Social assets by Forward Slash. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>